This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. So we see things like type 2 diabetes and this fluctuation and we think cardiometabolic, but it's also all the other conditions that are associated with that. So things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, depression, other nutrient deficiencies, they all piggyback onto that cardiometabolic condition. It's often overlooked in um, a lot of clinical practice where people may be focusing on thyroid health, for example, for someone with a thyroid conditioning, not realising that cardiometabolic health may actually be playing a major role in that as well. This is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, the podcast that's open-minded enough to take in all sides of a clinical story. You'll hear from researchers, doctors, naturopaths, nutritionists and patients. We look at common clinical presentations through a different lens. It's open, frank and sometimes controversial. Nothing is off limits. Will it change the way you treat? We'll leave that up to you. In season two of Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds, we look at cardiometabolic health. We talk to experts in the field who will take you into their clinics and share their experience. I'm Tony Chambers, and this is Bioconcepts Between Clinical Minds. Cardiometabolic is a term that's bandied around, but what does it actually mean? Well, cardiometabolic conditions encompass cardiovascular diseases like hypertension and heart disease, and metabolic conditions like diabetes, insulin resistance, and the cluster condition, metabolic syndrome. It's estimated that around 18 million people die of cardiovascular disease every year. Ischemic heart disease and stroke led the World Health Organization's top 10 causes of death list in 2019. Also on that list is diabetes, of which 90% is type 2 diabetes, and kidney disease is also on the list. So four of the top 10 causes of death are cardiometabolic in nature. Carla Brain is a naturopath from the Mornington Peninsula who specialises in getting to the bottom of patients' chronic health conditions, and that often involves a cardiometabolic driver. Very frequently, because I think the biggest problem that we see is that, you know, it's it's coming on fast, um, it, it's associated with other chronic conditions. So we see things like type 2 diabetes and this fluctuation, and we think cardiometabolic, but it's also all the other conditions that are associated with that. So things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, depression, other nutrient deficiencies, they all piggyback onto that cardiometabolic condition. So I think I would, if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say like something like 75% of my clinic would ha- um, cases would have some element of cardiometabolic. Remembering that I see lots of chronically ill patients. So it really comes down to um, a big part or a big driver of what's going on in so many of those conditions. So can you discuss that? I mean, you, we've done some work together on um, of cardiometabolic conditions as a driver of chronic health conditions. How do they drive other conditions? 
so profound in the effect that this dysregulation of blood glucose um, and the change in adiposity laying down, not just obesity, but also from an atherosclerosis uh, uh, effect and the damage on the microcirculation, uh, really interplaying with the immune system and then that inflammation. So the drivers kind of piggyback onto each other. And while cardiometabolic is a set of conditions in its own right, I think a lot of things piggyback onto that. And that's why we need to look at those drivers. It's always worth considering. And, you know, obvious ones like hypertension, and cholesterol sometimes aren't even known by the patient. And so we really need to be able to help determine those drivers for them. It's obvious when someone presents with, like you were saying, obesity, or maybe they've had a diagnosis or they've got some, you know, some pathology that they bring in with them. But are there cases where it's kind of not so obvious as that they're driving their health condition? Oh, 100%. I think, you know, things like um, even mood disorders, we really need to think about what could be going on from a cardiovascular perspective or cardiometabolic perspective, rather. Um, even gout, and certainly no one that comes in with gout, you know, it, kind of you can think of a typical patient that will present with gout and they've got a sore toe, um, maybe it's spreading further up their uh, limb and, you know, they're looking for some kind of pain relief and something that's going to work on their gout and here we are talking about their cardiometabolic health but it's so important in obviously resolving and preventing further gout episodes. Uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, like dementia, you know, that can be caused, uh, called um, type 3 diabetes, you know, so we really need to consider um, that for dementia cellulitis and then, of course, for me, seeing so many on oncology patients, but cardiometabolic is one of the key things alongside inflammation and immune health. I look at every um, oncology patient because it can have such a huge impact on what's going to happen with their prognosis. So can you walk me through how, uh, maybe with one of those not as obvious cases, can you walk me through a case where you've determined that a cardiometabolic abnormality is driving their presenting complaint? Yeah, look, I can talk about two actually that I think is quite interesting. You know, certainly from a depression point of view, we know that depression isn't a deficiency um, of serotonin alone or, you know, the solution isn't just using an antidepressant natural or pharmaceutical option. We need to really look at the drivers. And so in depression, I see that very often in cases where there's huge fluctuations in blood sugar level and perhaps some slight changes to microcirculation or circulation to the brain that we start to see a worsening of um, of depression and particularly periods of highs and low moods associated within a day because of the changes that they're getting from those blood sugar levels and the associated cardiometabolic risks affecting their depression. So it's like being hangry but on a whole new level. <laughs> um, depression aren't thinking about that themselves or don't know about that. And then the second example is, again, with cancer. You know, if we see patients who have elevated HbA1c, which would be my um, preferred look at blood glucose and, and that insulin sensitivity uh, and a tendency towards um, having a poor metabolic balance with their glucose, then that's going to lead to poor outcomes. And it's very easy to make changes in that area. And, and I think it's imperative for survival. I would go that far for oncology patients when they're really looking to address their whole health. Dr. Brad McEwen, PhD, has almost 20 years' experience as a naturopath, nutritionist, and educator. He has a special interest in cardiometabolic health. He agrees that cardiometabolic dysfunction is often a driver of other chronic health conditions. 
if you have a patient who walks in, let's say they don't present, they haven't got a diagnosis of, you know, I don't know, atherosclerosis or any kind of diabetes or insulin resistance or anything like that, what are you looking for in your questioning? If you're, if you're on alert for cardiometabolic conditions to be a drivers of, of other conditions, what are you looking for specifically in your questioning and your assessment? So I'm, I'm looking for a lot of the drivers. So the, the symptom picture can be just uh, tiredness, weakness, fatigue and fogginess. Like some of the symptoms are so random, people don't put it together until it's later. So instead, I'm looking at the underlying features. So, you know, one of the first things I look at with the mechanisms and the drivers, are the like a poor diet or a nutrient deficient diet, inadequate diet, and they could have the a very big diet, eat a lot of food, but the quality of that food is quite low. And, um, you know, I, I remember a time when a patient came to me and they said, oh, I've got a very good diet. I'm following the XYZ diet because I don't want us to get sued. Um, <laughs> I'm following you know, a particular diet and I'm following it, but I'm putting on weight. And, and when I looked at what they were eating, they were eating, you know, the calories and everything were correct, mm. but it was chocolate cake and carby carbs, like all the foods they were eating matched, you know, the diet calories level, but not the nutrient level. And then on top of that, of course, you've got the trans fats, and we've known about trans fats for a long time and how they impact on, you know, cholesterol, increasing total cholesterol, reducing HDLs, but just the impact of the oxidative stress and free radical damage is amazing with trans fats. And, and that's anywhere that recooks foods in the same thing. So if you go to... You know, place and you have chips, hot chips. They've probably used that um, cooking oil multiple times that day. And over time, the, the the oils, the fats change. So that's something I'm looking at. And what about some other drivers like stress? Stress um, <laughs> drives everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, so stress is typically seen as a survival instinct. That's what we have to think about. So if you have too much stress, it puts you into bed. Like you can't, your body burns out. But if you but if you don't have enough stress, you actually don't get up. You have no motivation. So you need that little bit of stress. Could be, oh my god, I need to get up and go to work to earn money to have food and shelter. That's stress. Yeah. So you actually get up and you go. So I always like to see, and this is just my, you know, Dr. Brad's number chart, which means nothing to anyone. But if it's like zero to ten, I like to see people around five. Let's just go mid-range. That's enough to get you up and going. It's enough to keep your reflexes going because if you have around five to six stress, your reflexes are active. You're not in the fight or flight mode. You're not there yet, but you're reacting to danger. So like if something tips over next to you, you can catch it or move out of the way. Your body's responsive to things. But as you go through the fight or flight further, that's when you start damaging the cell responses, the adrenaline, the cortisol, all these other factors get involved, leading to more stress and excessive aspects on all the different cells, tissues, organs, and the whole body system. And, of course, when you get to 10, you're just pretty much burnt out. And some people actually um, die from stress because the body's been hit so hard with stress. You've all heard of, you know, like shock itself, emotional shock. People have died from emotional shock because it's hit them so hard, the body's just gone and that's it. It's just copped out. So it's an interesting thing how it drives most health conditions and stress could be physical stress like breaking your hip while you're walking, emotional stress, mental stress. 
And one thing we do forget about sometimes, which some people find interesting, of course, is spiritual stress, which is our mindset. It doesn't have to be a belief in a higher being or anything kind of spiritual, but it's our mind, body, spirit. It's our connectivity with us, the world, and everything around us. And and that's enough stress where, um, you know, it's affecting you on a higher level. And, of course, mental health, and that's a totally different podcast, um, plays a very big role in um, a lot of things. And, and that stress plays you know, a secondary or primary factor in um, cardiometabolic syndromes because you've heard of people dying from a broken heart. So, and the heart wasn't broken physically, it was broken emotionally. So stress plays a major, major role. Are there any other drivers that you look for when you're doing that initial assessment, Brad? Yes. um, I don't like to focus on it because it's a very tricky topic and that's body weight. And, and I know we always try and focus on the healthy at all sizes kind of thing, and that, that's something that's last few years has taken off. Mm. That we're um, looking at the person as a person, not just as scales. But I will say, but <laughs> I don't like saying this. But there have been instances where, for example, the Framingham Heart Study, which is one of the longest studies in the world, has been going since the nineteen forties. And I like this study because every time we find something new, sometimes it's from the Framingham Heart Study where they've collected samples from the 1940s, 50s, 60s, all up to today. Mm. And tests that weren't available back then are now available now. And we can actually see that, yes, cholesterol was a problem for a long time, but not so much now. Oh, all of a sudden it is. Like we go back and forth because new research comes out. But what they found was, ready for this, an increase of 2.25 kilos, which is not much, mm. over a 16-year period. So just think about it, 2.25 kilos over 16 years, which is a long time, was associated between 21 to 45% increase in the risk of developing cardiometabolic Whoa, disease. Oh, wow. So we've got a bag of potatoes. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that, that weight, well, small bag, um, over 16 years. So it's not like someone did it in six months, which, of course, is great pressure on the body. This is a gradual yeah, increase yeah. over time was enough to lead to that. And I know it's it's a, it's a major study, so I have faith in the data. Um, but at the same time, it's thinking, wow, what else is happening mm. around this time? Because you know, weight's not the only thing, but it's the excessive pressure on the blood vessels, the hormone changes, the adipokines, the inflammation. Like, There's all these other factors involved. Often called lifestyle diseases, cardiometabolic conditions are also impacted by inactivity, smoking and sleep dysregulation. Our genes also play a role. People blame the genes very easily. And it's like, oh, it's because of my mother or father or something like that. And that's easy to do because we are a product of everyone else before us. And that's whether it's one generation or a thousand, we are the product of the people before us. But you could have the best genes in the world and be one of the sickest people. And then you can have, I don't want to say the worst genes because that sounds bad, but you can have um, not the best genes in the world and live to 100 and be healthy all the way through. Then you um, fall over, break your hip, and that's it. So it's sort of, and you're healthy up to that day. So it's sort of, you know, we tend to blame things very easily because genes are very easy to blame someone else for our problems. But the genes have a blueprint for our metabolism and how we work and how our body you know, synthesizes, produces, breaks down, utilizes things. So it's, it's the blueprint, it's the underlying features that if we know in advance, we can start working with. 
And so what would you do when you have a patient who presents with, with cancer or with depression and mood issues? Like how do you uncover it? I know you've got a system. Can you kind of briefly go through that and what you would do and what tests you would order? We want to break down the case in terms of can you see signs of cardiometabolic issues within the patient? And so things like asking about family history, um, even things like do they suffer from sleep apnea? Like I think that's the biggest clue that there's cardiometabolic issues going on. Ask them when their blood pressure was last checked. If it's not recently, check it them, check it for them. If you can, if you're in person with them, ask them are there symptoms associated with being uh, hungry um, or you know eating or not eating food, and then using some assessment tools. So I love things as simple as getting the tape measure out and doing some physical examination, asking them about their waist circumference, looking at their stress levels and how that can have an impact on cardiovascular health. And there's a great resource it's called the Australian Absolute Cardiovascular Disease Calculator, which you can use to understand your patient's risk as well. So just using some of those key resources, even if you just did waist circumference, blood pressure and pulse um, and looked at their pathology, then you're getting some really big clues that you need to consider cardiometabolic for this patient. And then after you've done that assessment, what are some of the tools that you like to use if that is the driver of their condition, let's say in, in, in the cancer or the mood can, mood disorders? Yeah, so I really then try to, um, and, and you could use like PCOS as another great example mm. um, that fits in with that. I would really try and um, use lots of lifestyle medicine tips. So I do love using herbs uh, and nutrients. Of course, there's lots of brilliant things that we can think of, you know, whether it be from omega-3s to berberine-containing um, ingredients and you know anything magnesium chromium anything in between but I also really try to to focus on that lifestyle medicine for this patient because this is something they're going to have to change and address every second of every day you know if they're eating shitty quality food and their blood sugar is going up and down like this and they're managing their mood by eating themselves to um, happy food to try and make them feel well then they need to know why they need to change it before they put that food in their mouth and it's the same with, with cancer when a patient comes to me they've usually just been diagnosed and it's very overwhelming. And so I try to teach them about lifestyle things that they can do, whether it be instituting some kind of time-restricted feeding, talking to them about the Mediterranean diet, talking to them about the importance of fat and protein in their food, even if they have an elevated blood glucose um, or lipid profile, why that's important, um, and just really educating around that and, and having great resources to do that makes it much easier because it's a big topic to talk about in an hour or 30-minute consultation. Mm. So having some resources resources that patients can take home. You know, maybe you've got some favorite recipes, things like that that you can use for your patient is important. You mentioned the Mediterranean diet, but is that just one that you use or do you use that one principally? Uh, I start with the Mediterranean diet for two reasons in many cases, particularly if the patient is just diagnosed uh, with cancer. And certainly I would definitely consider the Mediterranean diet in mood disorders, primarily because patients have heard of it before. It's not like the latest fad. It's got lots of great research around it. So I feel like it, it um, airs a little bit away from some of those diets that can get patients into the idea of they need to follow the latest trend. A Mediterranean diet is sometimes not too dissimilar to what they're eating, but we can just make some switches to get some really positive positive food in there. It's certainly not the only diet I'd recommend, though it's just a start point. Some of the other dieting uh, initiatives that I bring in, particularly with patients who have PCOS and the oncology patients, is to really start to get them into more of a ketogenic state using some of the principles of the autoimmune paleo protocol. And fasting, I think, is a great way to get their um, blood glucose down too with doing some time-restricted feeding, so having a fast period overnight that's extended. I love how holistic you are. And like you've spoken about diet and, and lifestyle, but 
But what are some of the the elements of the lifestyle part of it? Because you look at personal development and like having a purpose and all of that, don't you? Do, do you find that relevant in these cases too? One of the key um, patient groups that I don't see that frequently, but I really, they stick in my mind is men who've had cardiovascular episodes and they've maybe had to have a stent put in. And I think there's this big idea or multiple stents. I think there's this big idea that they're going to be better when this is done. You know, oh, I've been feeling shitty for so long or the wife will say, I'm so glad that they found this. Obviously, the patient hasn't passed away. They've been able to make changes before. It was really catastrophic. But it's often followed, and the statistics show this, often followed by a bout of depression or a mood decline at, at any extent because they don't necessarily get that instant feeling they expect they're going to get when their circulation's better. And I think sometimes we really need to work with these patients and patients who have chronic diseases that are really impacting their everyday life to help them find joy in other places. Because, you know, if your joy has or, or reward system or um, way of relaxing has previously been around um, what we would now consider unhealthy choices, so like alcohol, fatty food, takeaways, sweet sweet treats on the couch at night time, they're going to need a replacement. So finding helping someone find a purpose, I don't believe you can find their purpose, but I can, certainly think you can help them find their purpose and giving them something to do um, that fills their bucket and, and gives them that dopamine hit in another way that might be more healthy is a really important factor because I think just uh, naturopaths and complementary practitioners in general can sometimes get a bad rap of taking everything away you try to find a way of bringing things back and I love those conversations with patients where you learn about what they love to do um someone told me yesterday in clinic about doing I think it was like an urban doodling they called it something like that and it was they go out into their little hometown and they just do little sketches of what's happening and it's like documenting what's happening around them but um the lady that was talking about it had recently lost her husband to a heart attack actually and you know she was a widow now and she needed something to get out and about so this was her hobby and like I would never have known about this you would never have known about this she hadn't have talked about it so that was what she was doing she'd go and do a little sketch in our local hometown each day and you just get her out and about and people would come and talk to her and so you never know what people are going to find in their purpose and you know their legacy um, is something we talk about with oncology patients as well and helping patients find that can sometimes replace the joy you take away when you're taking away their favorite foods In the next episode of Between Clinical Minds, we continue the conversation with naturopath and sports nutritionist Kira Sutherland and sports dietitian Dr. Dominique Kondo. We look at muscle mass and its role in metabolic health. We also look at what we need to build and maintain muscle mass. Thank you for listening. We hope this podcast engaged and empowered you. And thank you to all of our experts. You can read more information on each of them on our website, bioconceptsengage.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode of Between Clinical Minds, please refer a friend and share the love. To continue the conversation, you can contact us at bioconceptsengage.com.au, where community is more than a concept.